Hey there, this week I share about a book called The Logic of Life, written by Tim Harford, an economist from Oxford. Published in 2008, Harford argues that rational behaviour is more widespread than expected in large populations. This is the first of two episodes, and we discuss chapters 1 to 3 about topics ranging from endowment effect, game theory, to why divorce is underrated. Enjoy. Okay, what is up, John? How are you? Hey, I, I'm doing quite well. How about you? Okay, okay not too bad. Are you excited to start school in like two days, <laughs> two, three days? I used to look forward to this day for a long time, but yeah. now that the day is finally here, it's like, it's really hitting differently. Uh. <laughs> so you got your teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I worked so hard oh. for these uh, artifacts. For these teddy bear. Yeah. Wait, but by your first week of lessons, is it how many hours a day, roughly? Uh, quite long hours. I've seen pretty big chunks of lectures. Oh yeah. my gosh. Doesn't look too good now. <laughs> Six years very fast, one. <laughs> five, la, five. Oh, five, yeah. Okay, okay. Five years very fast. But the, this is a lifetime. Uh. <laughs> okay, okay, what are we talking? So today, I, I, I've been holding on to this. So this book was introduced to me, introduced to me by some uh, church uncle. Then he just was like, I think he was just reading Econs after his retirement sort of stuff. Then he just, I was so interested to know more about Econs. La. I think I think any any individual working for whatever industry, you sort of need to know like in general how does the economy works. Yeah. Right. So uh, I think recently there was the, oh, the inflation. Remember we were talking, eh, was it? We're not talking about inflation, right? Mm, oh. You said it, you said it. Oh, I said it, right? Yeah, I said it, sorry, sorry. Yeah, but I haven't really read about it. Today, I want to talk about this book called The Logic of Life. It's written by this guy called Tim Harford. And he's a OBE, which we were just <laughs> fascinated by. Mm-hmm. That uh, Rashford so is MBE. Uh, he's not MBE. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, interesting. You know, you're saying he's not because of the charity. Yeah, all his charity work. Very interesting. I will, I will sort of firstly give an overview summary of it. I think there's nine chapters to this book, so it's quite long. But I think only the chapter two, three, and four sort of have very good points. So they are like a point per chapter, I would say. Then four, five and six is sort of just like examples of another point. Then the last two chapters, I, I will sort of skim through. I don't think it's very, not many points that were given. But I think, okay, in overall, the expectation of this book is, I think it's a, quite a good book in terms of the examples he gives to elaborate on some of the points that he has given but not a lot of not a lot of groundbreaking information mm. it's not a lot of uh, can't really expect this book to sort of change everything that you understand about econs or the world yeah but uh, but I think not downplaying it it's still relatively all this minute like stuff can sort of push you into thinking about things differently yeah yeah. okay yeah so if I go very quickly so chapter 2 talks about mostly the rational choice theory and and game theory la. so uh, just a brief context so chapter 1 he sort of talks about in the past, they have this phrase called the Homo uh, economist man. Or yes, that. yeah, the basically humans and the econs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, wait, pre-context, wait, you, you didn't do you didn't do econs, no, also, no. right? In IV. business management. Yeah, so I also didn't do econs. So yeah, I really have no clue. Don't don't cite me or anything. I'm just sharing what I know. But yeah, so one aspect of uh, econs is that you assume that everyone is rational. Yes. That yeah, everyone is doing things for a reason and intentionally. But then also, I think coming towards the recent years, a lot of uh, econs models will sort of account for all this irrationality, which will create more accurate models like, in terms of predicting the relationship between two, two factors, like, for example. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What chapter 2 describes is more of, uh, even though people argue that economists may not be the most, they, they'll be idealists, like, right? Because they choose a lot of rationality. But a lot of times, society at large are more rational than you think. Oh, okay. Then he talks, yeah. So he talks about addiction. He talks about and other human other human frailties that that doesn't seem very 
like the dirty side of human beings. Uh. But if you look at it a certain way, you can sort of see why it's still being done. Yeah. Mm. Okay, then chapter three is more about love and why there's the... Love? <laughs> yeah, love. There's why, why there's sort of economics behind it. Uh. Quite, quite interesting, I would say. Actually, chapter two, three, and four are quite good points. That I, I honestly thought it was quite good. Then chapter four is more about office and why is there like uh, office politics and this kind of thing. Okay. And how econs is, how rational behavior sort of explains how these irrational things that are going on in the office. Uh. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So if I go to chapter one first. Hmm. Okay. So will you say that like the number of like teenage sex has gone up or down since the past? <laughs> I think it's gone down. It's gone down. Okay. So yeah, that, that's, uh, that's correct. So at least for US, uh, these, these stats, you say that since 1990s, the number of teenage virgin has risen by 15%. But the interesting thing I found out was that oral sex happens more. Mm. So, and, and I think you can really think it quite, quite fast out of the top of your head is because oral sex, you don't have all these kind of, or lesser, less prone to all these kind of the transmission of disease. You still get it, and, la, but yeah, like, it's less risky. Yeah, you still get it. La. Yeah, but so one of his points is saying that genius is more common is because he's saying that even for this problem of uh, teenage sex, which I, I I don't think is a problem in Singapore. Yeah, it's not. Like, it's, yeah. Or it's not so, at least in our, in our circle, like, it's not so... Uh, not so seen as a like a good thing to do. Yep, I guess. But I, I can imagine that US is still quite a like a talked about thing. Yeah. So, but he's just saying that kids are a lot more rational than you think than people think la. Yeah. There's a lot of. Mm. So so the point yeah, is that he's saying yeah. that oral sex is more popular because uh the teenagers know that it's uh less risky than normal regular sex. Yeah yeah exactly. But yeah. okay I guess the way the way he ended this book or or short so these stats was that a lot of parents may be complaining about why their kids are having oral sex. I think <laughs> his argument to this is actually you must think about it very logically. Is that because it poses a lot less threat to a lot less cost, I'll say. Because you obviously if you have oral sex, you won't have a you won't conceive a child, that kind of thing. Uh, that's, a lot true. Less that's true. But I think this is yeah, an yeah. overly charitable like point of view. Like you're giving the teenagers too much credit. <laughs> you know what? Like you're giving the teenagers more credit than they may actually deserve. Then they should uh. that's true. It may uh, just be true. like, oh, I just like, want to try everything, then like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's not wrong. That's not wrong. Could be. Yeah, but you can't rule this point out either. Hmm. So actually, yeah, one, one of the interesting things I think about is that, or interesting thing that I got out of this, this example is that na- naturally, you will sort of think, okay, it's completely idealistic, very wrong to think that humans are completely rational. But sort of when you go into debates with people, right, you will sort of, the first assumption, when let's say you're, you're quote-unquote arguing or debating someone is that they will be rational, right? Mm, correct. I mean, yeah. As you should be la, most of the time, or like logical la, in a sense. But some things such as some things that the human emotions play is because they value different things. La. So econs when when you assume ration, when the meaning of rationality means that you respond to uh, incentives. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So if there is a there is an incentive to do something, then you do it. If there is a punishment to it, then you won't do yeah. it. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So similar to this, uh, a lot of debate or argument stems from the fact that people value different things differently. La. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So it's not a very major point, but yeah. <laughs> Wait, what were you getting at? That, no, yeah, as in so I'm trying to get it is naturally that human emotions are strong because people can't verbalize what they see as important or see as uh, uh of value. But naturally their human nature will just be like, oh okay, this is important. So that's what I feel for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for example, so for example, the first thing I th- when we think of not having sex as kids, right? We think of not having the cost, like the physical cost of having a baby, all the procedures. But then there's also the fear of AIDS and, and parental disapproval, yeah. which is what you will feel. Like, what, not, not things that you will think about, but just what you will feel. 
Mm, yeah, correct, correct. Yeah. yeah, emotions are quite important. Yeah, but then to some people, parent d- disapproval isn't an important thing. So they don't feel it. Then it's just not a factor they consider. Mm. Yeah. Okay, but it's not, very, it's not a very big point. It's not, not a mind-changing <laughs> point. Yeah, but okay, moving on. I don't know why he brought up this point again, but he brought up this author, Daniel Kahneman, which is the one... Oh, I, I love... Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's the one that wrote what? Uh? He's the one that Thinking wrote... Thinking fast the, and slow. Thinking fast yeah. and slow. So he gave an example of him conducting an experiment, and, but I don't know how is it related. I think he's just trying to say that humans can be logical and illogical at the same time or just inherently. So... Okay. Okay, I can't remember what he did. <laughs> I can't remember what he did, but his finding was that experiments show that people have different choices depending on how the choices are framed. I don't think any example for that. Wait, wait. I, maybe I can try and so, think of some examples. Okay, uh, so this is not his book, but basically in, uh, there's this example where... Wow. Okay, actually there's a lot of examples, but I can't find what's the best yeah. one. Okay, la, so let's say... Uh, so what he means by people can be logical, but also very illogical at the same time is that our minds are very susceptible to a lot of biases. Like So we have a lot of different ways to think about things. So... Let's say there's this guy who's trying to promote uh, some life insurance or something. Lah. So if you frame the thing as, uh, oh, if you buy this insurance, then you have a 70% chance of like saving this amount of money or something. But then oh, yes. on the other hand, if you uh, frame it as a, as a loss, so like if you, if you take this insurance, then you have a 30% loss chance of losing something then people would be very uh, loss-averse and they're more likely to choose the insurance policy. Yeah, so like this is just one small example. Uh, yeah, it's exactly the point. Uh. So the number itself doesn't change, uh, right? Yeah, so the number, the number of, and all the probabilities yeah. are all remain the same. So just the method of yeah. framing it will change the outcome. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. so that's what he means. Then, uh. I think he brings up this point, I mean, this author brings up this point somewhere later along the line about the comparison between auctions and just normal sales, which, which is one of the points that I actually want to main points I got his book was that even for businesses the way you market something or the way you sell something matters a lot so for example auctions the game of the auction is always trying to outbid the next if you really want it it's about to outbid the previous bidder yeah. so putting it more concretely let's say I just have a jar of 10 cent coins but worth $10 but nobody knows that okay let's say a, a 10 cent coins a jar for 10 cent coins worth $1,000 so it, it's a game of it's similar to that game where you know like put in primary school how many balls inside this this uh, container that kind of thing yeah but now it's more of how many coins are there inside this container. So in this auction, they're trying to evaluate this jar based on the size, based on how big one container is. Uh, sorry, how big one 10 cent coins, how big one container is. Then see whether they can bid to that average value. So what they found is that on average, when you put this in a context of not as auction, that means people are trying to figure out how much does this jar of n number of coins cost. They will sort the average of the big crowd will always get it correct, roughly correct. Hmm. Yeah. But when you put it for auction, it will always go much higher than people expect. Even though, because this is a physical thing, it's not like a painting which could appreciate in value. Like these are just physical coins. So there's no incentive to pay more than you should. But naturally, people still do because they have their hope that I don't want to lose or that there's the hope that uh, there could be earnings. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. a lot of the times, people overbid because that's, that's the only way you can win. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So even in business settings, like the way you sell something matters a lot. Yeah, you know, which also why a lot of times, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen, have you seen the NF, you know, NFTs, the non-fungible tokens, yeah. like the artwork. You know, you know that guy that there was one NFT that sold for like ninety six billion. Oh no, ninety six million, I think. Which one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This the famous uh, I can't remember his name, but basically that art piece was five thousand works he did over fifteen years. So every day he did one up one digital art piece, then it was five thousand. But a Singaporean guy bought it, you know. That's the thing. <laughs> Yeah, it was quite a big news. Oh, yeah. But yeah, but but one of the things I reflected was also, I don't think if you don't use the auction, it wouldn't have gone so high. 
because yeah, auctions just generate crazy prices. Uh. I guess it brings back the point that human emotions like affect our decisions a lot. That's true, that's true, yeah, exactly. It sort of taints your perception of what, what's important. Mm. Actually, this perfectly goes to our next point. So he brings out another uh, economist called John Lees. So he was studying puzzling irrational behavior. That means when, not irrational as in when people are like emotional that kind of thing, but scenarios where it seems to be people should be irrational, but they're irrational. So one thing he brings out is the endowment effect. Ah, yes. Basically, what it, yeah, what it means is when people suddenly value things more important because they simply own it. Yep. Yeah. So initially he he sort of referenced and either he did or he referenced to some economic lab test, like those those rats and all that. Like, so people but uh in in uh given some scenario like whatever. But what he realized, uh, and I found this a very good point, uh, economics or whatever, he said that when people are given unusual con- goods in unusual settings, that they, they make unusual unusual decisions. Yeah, so okay, I would say to say he's not using rats here, but <laughs> That when you're using when you're using people, right, it's very difficult to test things in isolation. So so essentially that was a good learning point for me. But what he did was he went to a convention, a training convention, lah. Then he started selling and swapping pins, you know, like like collectible, you know, like those Olympic pins. Yes, actually I'm I'm familiar with this example. So there's whole group of people, yeah, it's the trading convention, right? Then uh he gave is it equal amounts of the chocolate at the bank or something? Uh okay, I can't really remember too well, but I think he just gave two different. Yeah, okay, I think it's pins, okay, uh. he split it half half. I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So one group got the mug, then one group got the chocolate. Then I think they asked the questionnaire at the end, like, oh, do you want to exchange their gifts? Then most of the time they said no because they like the gifts that they had. So this is essentially the endowment. Yes, check. yes. Okay, but one one more thing that uh one other thing that he observed out of this whole experimentation was that the one group that did not act irrationally were people who are experts in it. So people who are actually expert uh pin traders, I guess. Yeah. So because they were expert, they they didn't have this emotional attachment to their because it, this 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 new pin they collected probably was just uh one pin out of many pins that they collected before. Yeah, okay. So then he discovered that actually all these experienced pin collectors were more likely to trade like trade trade those pins uh, as opposed to those inexperienced ones. Yeah. So so his major point he's bringing here is that being rational is not the exact same as being intellectually brilliant because at large evolutionary pressure has tendencies to produce organisms that behave in a rational way. So what I trying to say here is, is that similar to Rats, rats lab test, right? For for many for many animals, like you can sort of see that they have they have rationality also. So when you give them uh incentive, they will do what the they'll do a lot of, they'll do a lot of wonders, lah, right? Mm. They can like for monkeys have a lot high, like a lot of memory. For rats, they can respond predictably or rationally. Yeah. But what I try to say is that um so these pin traders, they might not be intellectually brilliant, but because they have the experience and it's something that is within their comfort zone, they've done so many times, it is unavoidable to be rational. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We actually maybe I didn't explain the example properly because oh I only talk about the mug and the chocolate thing, but this is a different it's somewhere it's a different la, setting. Somewhere oh, is it different? Wait, but it's kind of the same. Okay, but I think we got a point. Yeah, the same though. vein, lah. Yeah. yeah, same vein, la, Same vein. Actually, I got something to uh, add about like endowment effect. Oh yes, it's not entirely relevant, lah. But just say, just say. So I read this book. Uh, it's called Taste in the Age of Endless Choice. So oh wow. Okay. So okay, I didn't finish the book, but <laughs> there's just one uh point that I remember that the author made is that sometimes a lot of the things that we end up liking, we we always choose to like the thing after we make the choice. So once like so for this example, the endowment effect, like once you chose or supposedly given the the gift, right, you formulate a lot of reasons why you like that thing and why you dislike the other option. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. So that's essentially how how a lot of us like obtain or like formulate what our tastes are. And it's first by making a choice. Mm. Yeah. Okay, yeah. That's just an interesting side point. You mean even for like 
food preferences yeah. just because I it's the first few things that I taste then therefore I'm comfortable with it then yeah I mean that that's that's could be that's another that's another reason like yeah uh okay then he carries on to talk about this topic about why some people are rationally ignorant. So previously it was a scenario where we learned that irregardless of intellectual brilliance, some people still act irrationally. But the rational rationality just comes from people who are experienced. La. So there's experience in experience, therefore he's rational. Yeah, makes sense. But the next point is really bring across is that even though these people are experienced, so they are like experts in their field. Okay. So actually, yeah. So the experts in this field are the so prostitutes. La. So he's trying to give some rationality behind why. I don't know the stats, but I can see, I can imagine that the spread of disease, the focal points, and, and this phrase focal points will be bring across later, is, is from this uh, prostitution thing. Uh, right. Actually, even, even Singapore, we have the KDV cluster, yep. right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a uh, okay. It's not any spread of disease. It's not any spread of any sexual disease, uh, but it's a spread of disease. Hmm. What his point being across is that prostitutes are smarter because uh, it's not that they don't know about sexually transmitted disease. They are pretty well aware because it's is their whole job. They need to be aware of the risk. But they still do it because uh, a lot of them earn more than twice of what they could have earned for people of their, in general, of their education. Okay, I'm not sure. He put on some statements somewhere, some stats. He's comparing prostitutes earning to some other group of people. But he's saying they could earn easily more than twice of what they're earning. Okay. So if you think about it from, for example, like a stocks thing, if it's more risky, then you're willing, but the pay is higher, you're willing to match it, right? Mm. More risk, more reward. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, the interesting thing about the prostitution is that it is risky, but because the, the inherent risk isn't brought because of prostitutes, it's from the clients who are very, because they are not having uh, this kind of affairs every day. Yeah. They're not having yeah sex every day. So when they come across sex, like at this time or that kind of thing, they'll be quite, they'll be less aware of all these sexually transmitted infections and like matters to, uh, or like all these stats lah, about it or like matters to prevent it. So for example, just a basic question of to use condom or not, the client will definitely say, I wouldn't want to use condom, for example. But as a as a prostitute yourself, imagine you technically when you know about all this information and you know that this just isn't isn't just your first client that you're sleeping with. Tendency is you definitely use a, a, a condom. Yeah, la, right? yeah, but to the client, it's just a one-hit wonder. I just I, I I can imagine not many people. Okay, la, I'm not sure. But some people may not go to the prostitute like very often. La, or like most people won't go to the prostitute very often. Yeah. So but this because of this, it, it creates a very re, re- negative uh loop. Because now, even though they are aware, prostitutes are aware that you cannot, uh, there's aware of these diseases, all these STIs, right? They will market their having condomless sex or like raw sex as a higher paid service. Oh. Yeah, because they know that the clients aren't aware of it, but they are aware of it. Okay. And so they are just being rationally ignorant because now they create greater risk. They know the risk, but they also know that it's also more incentivized. Yeah, that's true. But I don't see how they are being ignorant of it. It's just they're making use of the, the, the higher value of the service. Right, and they are absorbing uh, the risk on their own like, because they're not ignorant of the risks. Yeah, yeah. So I don't really get how it's rationally ignorant. It's just like being smart about it. It's, I think it's more ignorant of the rationality like. like if you really rational, like uh, you you can't okay. Even though I said it's a risk and reward, you can't compare this to like stocks risk and reward because this one is the risk is uh sexual infection uh, Yeah, yeah like, it is much higher. Is your whole life like, You can't really value how much a person is. So. It's still not being very, very rational. Yeah, true. But yeah. Yeah, but rational doesn't uh, equal smart, though, so. Yeah. Okay, I can see where you're coming from, but yeah, like, but this is what he says about it. Like, just being rational. You know, okay, I get I get what he means, like, it's just that the framing is a bit funny. Uh I guess just he wanted to bring across this experienced traders thing. Experienced experts like, in the field. Mm, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, actually, no, I, th- I realize what he's saying here. So he's saying because of this intersection of people that are experienced and inexperienced, then there's this. Yeah, so previously, you are just the pin trading thing. You have your experienced traders and your inexperienced traders not interacting. But now when you have an industry where these are, where your experienced traders are your the, the prostitutes, your inexperienced traders are your clients, their clients, then it just creates a loop of uh, rational ignorance, uh, I guess. Okay, yeah, 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 I see that, yeah. Yeah. I guess. Okay. Yeah, so that is chapter one. Okay, so chapter two goes on to talk about gambling and more more so about game theory. I do you know anything about game theory? Not much, not much. It's just that everything in life not is much. a game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in, in, in a more concretely, it's more like everything has a pro and con. And then you have to decide whether you want to have a win-loss or loss win or win-win or lose-lose situation, essentially. Yeah. Uh but yeah. Okay, I don't know too much about game theory, but essentially game theory was sort of Started by this guy called John Von Newman. I think you probably, you probably heard of him, right? The com science math guy. Sounds familiar, huh? Yeah, he's the first few that was involved in all these computer things, lah. Yeah. Then, in summary, one of the weaknesses of his, I'm not too sure about game theory, so and his and his math stuff, but his limitation for his models was that they were too rational, similar to what I said earlier on, lah. And but the, the crazy thing about this is they're using game theory in Cold War. So it's very, very it's not they sort of tested it or used it in, in gambling, but it's also related to the whole politics uh, stuff. Yeah. So in and that I think in the Cold War you can't be wrong about why because it's a Cold War. So you can't be second outing your your move. Uh, yeah. Uh okay, I think I'll just fast forward to the important. Okay, I think two points, but the first point not 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 very remarkable is that similar to I think the previous episode where I mentioned that inherently humans have this inbuilt ability to understand a lot of complex ideas yeah. right like, like you know remember yes. I told you about the baseball and then yes. the velocity and everything yeah. right so uh, game theory working in uh, casino is quite difficult because a lot of times there is uh, first of all like if you look at like NLP like the natural language processing there's a lot of non, non-verbal communication like you know when we play poker a lot of times is you may not have the best hand so rationality will be if I have the best hand I always bet yeah but once you play a tactic, people always know that oh, if, if you're betting means that it's a good hand. Good hand, and then nobody will bet, nobody will play yeah. very. Yeah. So then it won't be optimized for you to earn a lot of money. So there's a lot of strategies that turns out a lot of these times, those people who are just or those famous gamblers, they always just win, as opposed to his his modeling of game theory. Mm. Yeah. But I'll say one one thing that they did mention was that this guy called Chris Ferguson from UCLA. I think he studied maths. So I think one thing was his, his dad also was a professor. So he and his dad wrote co-wrote some some paper. La. What he discovered was that of all the re- of all the readings they done, it was worth making small raises and encouraging opponents to stay in and try to improve their cards. So that is a proper tactic. Mm. Yeah. So if anything, yeah, that, that's a thing, small poker tip for anyone. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so in any case, it's always uh, I I guess this can apply to any other. You're applying for a job, trying to negotiate negotiate your pay. Yeah, yeah I think that applies. Yeah, I guess the more important part was this guy calls Thomas Scaling. So he was actually one of the one of the key figures in, involved in the in the Cold War. I am not too aware of all this history also, but there was a Cold War like, I don't know who and who America and someone else. Do you know what? No, no. <laughs> Yeah, I also don't know much about it. Yeah, but the weakness that game theory brought Newman, John Von Newman, is that he assumed it to be a zero-sum game. That means one player must lose and then uh, one player must yeah. win. And that the game was well, had well-defined rules. So similar to like poker where there's well-defined rules, at least. But for for the Cold War, there was no rules. And it's not, it could be a, it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. It could be, the best case I would say is no one loses. Mm. No one, no one, ga- everyone gains and no one loses. Yeah. So, but he, he argues that, so this Thomas Gettinger, he argues that real human strategic in, uh, interactions, or at least like when politics, politicians talk to each other, is not only uh, by, by his, met- like Von Neumann's 
mathematics. Uh, but also by focal points, which are invisible under any of these uh, formulas. For focal points are basically the idea that like, Similar to like how the butterfly can cause a hurricane, the energy. That something small could add a lot of things. Yeah, but uh, what, what, what was his key discovery on this was that in this whole Cold War situation, the most important thing was communication. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and this was quite mind-blowing to me because when he, when he said focal points, I wasn't very mind-blown. But then when he said focal points in terms of... Uh, I think he was someone that really understood the like how, how powerful a nuclear war would be yeah and, and so he was the person that came up with the hotline to Mas- 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 Moscow yeah so he realized that one of the major focal points okay like nowadays we have very easy communication right yeah. but when back then there's no like yeah one of the main one of the easy weakness of focal points that could not be intended that means that it wasn't planned by US it wasn't planned by Moscow was that someone along the line, like the radar operator, might have said something wrong or interpreted something wrong, or not not the not the radio operator but maybe like the messenger or something like that. And so that's why he created a line to the the famous red telephone lah. Yeah, the you know the emoji the telephone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's red color because of it. Yeah, because of him. <laughs> so he's the one that really uh made made it such a he he put a red telephone there um uh, to make it such that if anything will happen, it won't be because of something stupid. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that that was quite impressive. I thought, or at least historically, like it was quite quite funny how everything just boiled down to the red telephone. Yeah. Uh, okay, it goes on to mention something about how addictions are rational, so but not much that I can elaborate on. Uh, I think in summary, he's what what you're trying to say is just that addictions have a high activation energy. Do, do so oh, a lot yes. of times yeah. The, the yeah the incentive to stop is much lower than the incentive to start. Again, or continue. Oh yeah, or to, or to continue. Mm. So therefore, like for example, like any yeah, like the incentive to start is you want to just know what's going on la. and the incentive to carry on is that you have no incentive to stop. Mm, makes sense. Actually, I, I can kind of link this to some other example about like rationality. So like yeah, uh, maybe like in the context of addictions. Let's say if some person is addicted to like um, you no know, like buying forty or that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but um, let's say that his level of income is not even that high to sustain that uh, addiction in the first place yeah. um, uh, but you can still say that everyone like his choice is still a rational choice to him because maybe mm. like, if you go into his, uh, his perspective he's saying like oh this uh, buying this 4D or buying this lottery is my only chance to get a taste of what like riches are if in the case that he wins the lottery. Yeah, something something like that. Yeah. So this mm, that's true, that's true, yeah, yeah. So this is like just one example of how like um every person's like own economic choices are rational to them. Yeah. And actually you brought a good point as well because one of the later points in the chapters he's, he also brings out how individual individual rationality sometimes brings about uh overall irrationality. Like societal irrationality. Yeah. Yeah. So that was quite interesting. Okay. Yeah, but that, that's about it for chapter two. So it's just sort of like a brief introduction, brief introduction to game theory and uh some examples. Uh. Okay, I thought chapter three and four were quite good points. It was just examples, uh specific topics. Uh, but quite good points as well, I would say. I think this these two chapters are sort of the main points of the book. Okay. Yeah, so so it starts out with this with this uh statement. Uh the chapter title is called Is Divorce Underrated. Essentially, he's trying to argue that while it's quite a controversial thing to say, but divorce is needed in a sense. Yeah. Okay, okay. That's that's the conclusion. And I think by the time you finish uh I finish explaining this this chapter, you sort of understand. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. So okay, he starts off by saying that economies is everywhere. La. So that you, you will see even in, in a small discrepancy between the sexes, let's say a room of 50, 100 people, right? You have 51 girls and 49 guys. The, the effects of it, the demand and supply of it will be very different. 
So he brings up this, this statement, which is that love is blind, but then lovers are not. Mm. You get it? Yeah. So people are still aware of, people are still rational beings. Lah, and they can see for themselves what is to them, what is... Uh, what what's how demand how demanded are you? What is your supply? That kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, he imagines the uh, or he 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 feel he he thinks that the husbands and wife those, those married couples really you can imagine them as sort of like economic unit la. So apart from just societal norms or anything, why is there still a historical uh sort of uh need for other than the biological thing to have uh uh marry someone husband or husband or whatever is that because you're able to divide labor and share the cost of bringing up children hmm. yeah okay then he links he links it to how divorce contraceptive pills and women's achievement in the workplace are sort of linked and are like a reinforcing loop la. okay I'll go, I'll, I'll go on to say the first the first example it gives la. so imagine you have uh, his statement is that scarcity is power and more power than you might have thought so imagine you have the marriage market uh, uh, imaginary place where People are looking to get married. And then you have a 50-50 split of uh, male and females, uh, right? As- assuming straight relationships. Yeah. Uh, and that everyone has the same uh, level of attraction. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You can... Like, can you imagine why even one lesser woman will cause a lot of problems? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, if you put it into the game, uh, so let's say this game is where married couples get split earnings. So, that means if you get married... So, the objective of the game is 50-50 50 males, 50 females in a room. If you come out of the room being married, you earn a certain amount of money. So, let's say $100. Then each get $50. But if you stay single, you have, you get no money. Okay. So, na- naturally, you will... And, and imagine this is a real real, real thing. La, so, they actually get married. It, so, for example, now we're a senior, we're 50-50, right? Everyone will be happy. That obviously, the game theory is that everyone will just get married to someone because they're all equal levels of attraction. Then you just marry and then earn their money, right? Uh, but the problem comes is when, when there's one odd woman out. So, let's say, for example, they are not there, la, for example. Now, that becomes a demand and supply because, because there's more males than females. There will be a, obviously one... Eh, sorry, sorry. The other way around. One, one, one male is gone. So, one female... Okay, it doesn't matter actually. Yeah. But for example, if let's say the male is one one less male, there'll be one female without a partner. No matter who, but there'll be someone, right? And and because they're all the same attraction, they have to get an edge against someone. So what are the, what are the first uh lady does? You say, okay, never mind, instead of fifty dollar split, uh you'll give me I'll take forty dollars on you, you'll take sixty dollars. Oh. And this becomes like a reinforcing loop where everyone will see their market rate. And then okay, never mind, never mind. It's okay. You take all the money. I just, I just get married. I just get one cent can already because that's better than zero dollars. And so eventually, everyone will be offering ninety nine cents, ninety nine dollars, ninety nine cents instead of hundred dollars. Oh, sorry, instead of fifty dollars. Yeah, yeah. And so this is just one person out of hundred, hundred people. So you can imagine in the actual real world marriage market where there are so many other factors, right? And the fact is, generally cities uh have more girls than guys yeah it's not just one one less that kind of thing mm. I would say maybe like general cities 60% guys 60% girls 40% guys really? <laughs> yeah, yeah okay in general like, in general like, maybe a bit more than that like uh, 55% guys sorry 55% girls 45% guys <laughs> okay yeah, yeah. Natural, similar to this economic game where you have the marriage market uh, and, and people sort of the, the girls sort of have an uh, edge against uh, uh, each other to, to attract more uh, to a better value right uh, naturally at least this is what they study in in US. Uh, that that that's one of the main one of, one of the key reasons or push factors that reasons are uh that women are starting to educate themselves. I mean, a lot of factors like uh more access to technology and kind of things. But one of the factors that this uh he he writes about is that because women have to sort of upgrade themselves due to the their lesser in uh, more in supply. 
lesser in demand to increase know? their value la. increase their value la, in a sense so that's, that's the first aspect then he brings okay then he brings off a very bold statement to put but he puts out this this if I go back to the demand and supply of male and females this is just one absurd from some some uh th- there was a quote like at the start of the, uh, the chapter that basically it's just, just, just some New York lady that was complaining about the lack of marriageable men in city but then what, what was found out that was, as mentioned in cities in general there are more more ladies than men and the reason is because rationally as well as over the course of nature women tend to look for more educated men I, I think that's why you said something okay here. okay <laughs> yeah yeah. so in a sense okay he puts his statement somewhere there but I mean it's, it's linked in a certain you know it's said in a certain way linked in a certain way but tendency is that if you are a less educated man then you, you move to the city uh, move away from the city if you are more educated then you move towards the city hmm. yeah yeah. but why women are getting more educated first of all first the first point is of the upgrading themselves um, okay but I'll talk about first about comparative advantage it's just one of three points that he explains why there's a sort of a, the division of labor, i.e. to say the economic unit, which is the marriage, is a bit going sexually lopsided nowadays because of these three economic forces. So the division of labor, economic at scale, and then comparative advantage. So, okay, I think most of it we sort of understand already. Division of labor is that you marry so that you can sort of divide your labor. Mm. The economy of scale is that uh, one, one full-time worker earns more than two half-time workers. So if you think about the, the olden age uh, marriage where you only have one, if you have two full-time workers, all the more better. Lah. So by imagine you have one only. So your chances are you, the, the option you have is husband and wife both are half, half-time workers or you have one husband working in the full-time worker. Uh, statistically, the full-time worker will earn more. Lah. Mm. Yeah. It's like being a you study men's school two and a half years and then expect to get a job like it's a, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Only happen uh. the the whole yeah, is you probably expect more than the sum of his parts uh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. In some scenarios, uh, in yeah. some scenarios, yeah. So that's the explanation about economic skill and why there is a need for it in the marriage. But he brings out this part about comparative advantage. So his idea of why initially males were the one getting the doing the jobs and females were the one staying home. Uh, is let's say you have a table and two columns. One is male and female, right? And they are judged based on their ability to do the, do their job, as in their outside job or ability to care for their home. So it's men and uh male and female job and home. His argument is that uh, men could be uh this is just scenario la, where they're just terrible at both both jobs and caring for the home. Just that the women are way better at caring for the home than they are better that in doing their job in 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 the than men la. <laughs> Okay. Does that make sense? Sounds a bit sexist, but yeah, it makes sense. Sounds a bit sexist. Yeah. Whereas in, yeah, la, so in the end, even though the ladies are, for example, in a certain industry, they are better than the men than doing that job. Okay, so let's say, let's say for cooking, for example, uh, that's very stereotypical. But one question I always had is, if ladies are always one cooking at home, why aren't they cooking in the restaurants, for example? There's a job, hmm. right? But I think you can put comparative advantage in the scenario very well, where because they are much better, even though they are very good at both, cooking as a job, as well as cook professionally, as well as cooking at home, but they are, they are compared to their husband, they have to work at home because they are much better at that, at that than their husband as compared to the husband is good at his job. Yeah. Okay, it's sounding a bit convoluted, but I get what you mean. Yeah. Basically, like but, if you compare a woman's like competency in like cooking versus like in the let's say like in a domestic sense versus a professional sense, maybe like the disparity is uh not that much. But then when you compare it, the husband is becomes suddenly a lot of difference, lah, basically. Yeah, yeah. Okay, if you put in the numbers, essentially the the man is a two and two. So his job is let's say out of five. His ability to do his job is two out of five. His ability to care for his home is two out of five. But then for the female is four out of five and five out of five. Mm. But now you only can choose one of each. Yeah, yeah. So it's either two plus four or two plus five. Yeah, okay. 
So it's took the file. Uh. But then the file will be for the lady to work you know, at mm. home. Uh. So what has changed from this from this point on this comparative advantage is that because of all this technology, caring for your home isn't very difficult now. You, you can have uh, all the, like, I don't know what, Dyson fan or Dyson vacuum to go and clean your everything. <laughs> so because of this lesser effort or lesser importance of caring for your home, then there's less strain on women to, to do that. And there's more leeway for women to go and work. Yeah. And so they can sort of pursue what they are already better than men at, la, which is doing okay. work, la, getting a job. Yeah. yeah. But then this creates another sort of loop where you have increased divorce rate or how do I say? Because they have a... It may not be the the women's uh, upgrading or getting the education and or like getting a bit, more women are getting into high level education and the ability to get jobs might not be the reason for the cause of divorce. But uh, he writes that um this this sort of breaks the previous model of an economic unit la, in a sense. Then tendencies are like for example, so it may not cause the divorce, but it sort of drives the chain yeah. in a sense that personally, it's just me and female. I don't I don't see it as a sexist thing. It's a yeah, but. For example, if when the initially the, the female will be dependent on the male because he's the one doing the job. But like as previously, he might not be the one better at it. The, the female might be the one who is inherently just better mm. at job. But so but she's still uh dependent on the economic unit. So tendency is divorce is very low last time. But now when females are getting jobs and they become more independent, tendency also if I was a female also I I wouldn't feel very tied down to my husband. Right? Yeah, correct. Because it's just I'm I'm able to uh fend for myself and feed myself. Then divorce rates will increase. But as divorce rates increase, then first of all, first of all, you will the mark the the marriage market will now be filled with more divorces. And it's like once you do it once, it's uh once you do it once, it's not so difficult to do it twice. But second of all is you meet people with complicated passes which might not be the best recipe for carry on marriage, I guess. Yeah. Okay, but that one's a bit more complicated. Now by giving uh, women an option to exit sort of quote unquote the, the marriage, you sort of give men stronger incentive to behave well inside marriage. So as a result, there is less domestic domestic violence uh, happening in marriages. La. Oh yeah, that definitely makes sense. Yeah, so yeah, so supposedly uh, a lot of a lot of partners murdered their wife last time. <laughs> Like it seems, yeah, it seems like I put a statistic there. And then female suicide rates are quite high. Yeah, but I don't think it's quite difficult to see that. So I think you see the movies, like all those Godfather, you can see like a lot of the w- w- women are mistreated. So yeah, that, that, I mean, obviously, I think in an age where now, in a ethics is more in, more question, right? At large, the push factor also is more of this. La. Mm. It's more because women are educated now and you, you can't really, they have exit option, which, which is a good thing. La. Yeah. 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 But so, so his summary in the end was that while divorce isn't a good thing, there is a, such thing as an optimal divorce rate. La. Because when you have this divorce rate and women have, you know that men have known that women have this exit option, then they will sort of be kept at their toes. La. But he says that there is 100, they're 100% sure that it shouldn't be zero. Because once divorce rate is zero, it means that tendency is that you go back to the, the previous economic unit. No? Mm. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, actually, okay, I missed one point which he brought earlier, which is that, I mean, just an interesting fact about finding love, I guess is that basically he tried to look at rationality behind love by observing the speed dating like events. But it's quite a big, quite a big group of people. So there was an event with like 1,800 uh, men and women. So 3,600. Then what he concluded after gathering all the data of those 3,600. Okay, sorry. The context of those speed dating is that, you know, like those tables, those mini tables, then they will just like meet the person for like five yeah. minutes. Just talk. Then after their whole like combination or permutation or how many people they met, they will sort of contact those people that after the thing, like who they want to hang out with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's how it works. Yeah. So, but what he realized is that a lot of times, pe- people are still aware of 
the as as I mentioned, love is ration, uh, rational, but uh, love is not rational, but lovers are. But people tend to settle more than they are for they're looking for the one. If that makes sense. Yeah, this is what I said earlier, right? Like we rationalize the choice after you made it. Oh yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, he starts off with this this chapter asking about the supposedly age-old question, like when people ask for their love of their life, do they look for the one or is it someone you just get used to? But exactly like how rationality works, it also works in in love, like It's just maybe there is the one maybe there is the one I to say someone that really matches all your requirements but more often than not people have too high requirements and they just have to sort of change their standards Mm. 